If you have a copy of God's Word, would you please open with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 14 to 18 this morning. I'd like us also to read verses 1 to 5 as they will shed further light on Christ in verses 14 to 18. So we'll begin there. If you, uh, if you forgot your Bible or you don't have one, there are extras available for you in the pew, and you can find our text on page 886. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I feel so uh, unworthy to even read a text as glorious as this one. I feel like Isaiah who, when he looked upon the glory of your Son, said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But this is the very reason the Word became flesh, that we might have access to you and fellowship with you in your glorious splendor. It was not your will to keep yourself hidden from us, and we are grateful for this, but instead you chose to reveal yourself to us in your Son that we might be saved, that we might draw time, uh, draw near in time of need. This is a time of need. We need your help understanding your word this morning, that we might behold the word's glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So send your spirit to help us see him now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, verses 14 through 18 are the last five verses of the introduction to John's gospel, and they are magnificent. One of the hardest things for me in preparing this sermon was deciding what to leave out this week. Otherwise, we could... Well, sit here the rest of the afternoon unpacking the riches of these verses. 
but we'll only be here for two hours. For example, we could go to passage after passage after passage in our Old Testaments and discuss how God's word was what he used, what he spoke, what he had written down to reveal himself in creation and in redemption. And in so doing, we would see that's precisely why Jesus, why John calls Jesus the Word in verses 1 and 14. As the Word, Jesus is God's self-revelation in creation and redemption. Or, we could spend quite a bit of time attempting to understand how it is that the eternal Son of God adds to His person a human nature and does so without affecting His divine nature or taking on the sinfulness of humanity. It's something that must happen if we are to be saved. But how does that happen? Or we could run to many different texts which help us understand what it means that Jesus is the only Son from the Father. Many of you have likely heard it translated that Jesus is the only begotten from the Father. That's true in one theological sense, that Jesus as the eternal Son is eternally begotten and not made. But that's not what John's after here. Rather, he simply means to distinguish the children of God, which he mentioned in verses 12 to 13, which we saw last time we were in John, distinguish them, those children, with his unique one-of-a-kind son in verse 14. In other words, there's no other son in the universe like the son who has enjoyed eternal fellowship with his father. And we could spend a couple of hours pointing each other to Jesus' uniqueness from the scriptures. Or we could talk once again about the ongoing significance of John the Baptist's testimony to Jesus He identifies Jesus in verse 15 as the one who was before me. He was before John, all right. Jesus, the Son, was in the beginning with God, verse 2 tells us. He said, he was before me, is what John the Baptist bore witness to. John the Baptist was identifying Jesus as the eternal Son. He was before everything that was made. Or we could talk another hour about how Jesus begins, how John begins his story of Jesus back in eternity past, prior to creation, then brings us all the way up to creation, which he says Jesus made in verse 2 and 3, then takes us through his existence as the life giving light after the world fell into darkness all the way up to when that light entered the world through the Word made flesh. If you want a story that explains all other stories, including your story with all of its ups and downs and joys and sorrows, read John's Gospel. So we could spend our time there as well. But we're not. But don't let that disappoint you, because one of the greatest 
One of the greatest features about John's Gospel is that he circles back around to these same themes again and again, such that he adds a bit more to the story each time, and then circles around to what he said before, linking it all together and driving you deeper and deeper into the glories of Jesus Christ. So that when it's all said and done, we cannot even help but believe in this one called Jesus. So we'll eventually cover some of the things I mentioned as we move through John's Gospel. But for this morning, I'd like our focus to be on answering the question, what does Jesus reveal about God, according to verses 14 to 18? What does Jesus reveal about God? If Jesus is the Word... And as the Word, He is God's self-revelation to man. He is God's ultimate communication of what God, is, what God is like and who God is. Then what does Jesus reveal to us about God according to verses 14 to 18, when the Word becomes flesh? That doesn't mean the Word changed into flesh, by the way in the sense that he stopped being divine, but that God added a human nature to his son's divine nature so that the one person of Jesus is God enfleshed. So when that happens, what does Jesus reveal about God? And I see two answers to that question in verses 14 to 18. The first answer is that Jesus reveals God's glory personally. Jesus reveals God's glory personally. Something glorious about God is put on display when the eternal word became flesh. Let's read how John puts it in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he has much more in mind than Jesus simply living as a human being in our midst. John's overriding assumption is that Jesus is the eternal Word. We saw that earlier when we read John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus, John's overriding assumption about Jesus is that he is the eternal word, and as the eternal word, he reveals God everywhere he is, in everything he says, and in everything he does. Now, not everyone recognizes Jesus as God's self-revelation. Such sight is only given to those who believe, the Apostle John being one of them. He not only saw Jesus' physical body, before and after the resurrection, but he also witnessed Jesus for who he really is, God's self-revelation. Which is why he doesn't merely say that the Word lived among us. He says the Word dwelt among us. John's using some Old Testament imagery here to describe the nature of the words coming coming literally he means that the word tabernacled in our midst he pitched his tent and lived among us he's taking us back to the way god chose to dwell and meet with his people in the wilderness 
In Exodus 25, the Lord commanded the people to build a tabernacle exactly as He told them. The tabernacle was to serve as a sanctuary so that the Lord might dwell in their midst. We find something similar with the tent of meeting in Exodus 33. Moses used to make to, to take uh, the tent, it says, and, and pitch it outside the camp. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. The Lord's glory would then descend on the tent in a pillar of cloud. And at the sight of God's presence, the people would bow down and worship. Exodus 33.10 This kind of meeting place became the pattern throughout God's dealings with His people. Wherever God caused His name to dwell, wherever He chose for His glory to reside, that's where they were to erect the the tabernacle and meet with God in His glorious presence. The temple in Jerusalem, of course, would later replace the temple. But what gave the temple such significance was the same as it was for the tabernacle in the wilderness, namely the glory of God's presence, the public display of God dwelling with His people. Remember the devastation you feel when when you read Ezekiel and, and you read his vision of the glory of God's presence rising up from the cherubs on the altar? all the way to the top of the meeting place, and then soon moving to the outer courts, and then to the gates of the city, and then to the mountain outside the city? What good is the temple if God's glorious presence isn't there to enjoy? It's why David said that better is one day in your courts, O Lord, than a thousand Elsewhere, I'd, I'd rather be a doorkeeper, he said, in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Why? Because the Lord God is a sun and a shield, he says. He bestows favor and honor. Psalm eighty four eleven. The glory of God's presence gave the tabernacle and the temple their significance for the people, for that is where God met with them. By saying that the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, John is saying that the glory of God's presence is no longer limited to a tent in the wilderness or a temple in Jerusalem, but is beheld in the Son of God Himself. We have seen His glory, John says. Whose glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just as the manifestation of God's glory in the tabernacle was how the people met with God and knew God was present with them, so also for us who walk with Christ. He is the true and perfect and decisive and supreme manifestation of the glory of God's presence. Scripture says that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 1.19 and chapter 2, verse 9. This is what makes Jesus so unique. It's what makes Him the one-of-a-kind Son from the Father. Nobody reveals God's glory personally like Jesus. In fact, no mere man was ever able to even look upon God in His glory without dying until the Word became flesh in Jesus Christ. 
That's what verse 18 says. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, the Word, He has made Him known. Yes, the Bible says Moses spoke with God as a man would do face to face. And Moses saw God's form, it says, in Numbers 12, 8. Isaiah the prophet also says that his eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6, 5. But all these sorts of encounters must be understood in light of God's words to Moses in Exodus thirty-three twenty. You cannot see my face, for a man, and he means a sinful man, shall not see me and live. No one has ever seen God. However... When the Word became flesh, that barrier was overcome. In Jesus, God makes Himself known, such that John does, John's not saying that He just catches a glimpse of God's glory in Jesus, but He actually sees God's glory for what it is when He looks at Jesus. John sees glory as of the only Son from the Father. This one, who's been at the Father's side, in the Father's bosom for all eternity, has now become flesh and made God's glory known personally. The word John uses in verse 18 uh, for he has made him known is the same word that appears in the book of Acts. Whenever uh, Luke describes the apostles recounting their mission trips, a good example is in Acts 21 verse 19 where it says that Paul related one by one The things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry? Well, that's very similar to what John means when he says that Jesus has made God known. You want someone who tells the whole story about God? Look at Jesus. Don't look to Muhammad or Joseph Smith or your favorite preacher. Look to Jesus Christ. He reveals God's glory personally and he tells the whole story as it is. He was with God in the beginning. He knows Him. He's experienced presence with Him. He tells the whole story. Now this has several implications for us. To begin with, it means that if you want to know God, you must look at Jesus. Knowing God is not a mystery. He is not keeping Himself hidden from you. He has told us where to look and who to trust if we are to experience the glory of His presence, namely, the person of Jesus. If you're here today in an attempt to search for God, or somebody brought you in hopes that you would meet God, you need not look any further than upon the person of Jesus Christ. He alone is where you will find fellowship with God. If you don't know Him, the problem is not that God is far away from you, but that your sin is keeping you from seeing His glory in Jesus Christ. And Satan is keeping you from seeing Him clearly. The Bible says that Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of God's glory in Christ. So my prayer for you is that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness will also shine in your heart to give you the the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus is where true life begins. So look to Him, believe in Him, and God will transfer you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son.
Something else we must consider is how these verses help us understand the nature of true glory. When John says we've seen his glory, he doesn't mean that Jesus was walking around Nazareth with a halo on his head. Okay? Or that he shone with the brightness of the transfiguration just all the time. Even Isaiah had foretold that God's servant would have no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 53.2 So that's not what John is getting at when he says we've seen his glory. What he's saying is that when, we, when he looks upon Jesus with the eyes of faith, he witnesses a glory unlike any other. It is a glory revealed in the one who could have kept his high place in heaven with the Father, but chose instead to join the lowly ranks of humanity in order to bear a cross for their salvation. For John, true glory doesn't cling to places of honor at another's expense, but gladly gives it up for another's eternal good. And such glory in John's gospel reaches its apex in the cross of Christ. It's why Jesus begins his priestly prayer in John 17. Father, the hour has come. That is the hour of his death. Glorify your son. That the son might glorify you. God reveals the nature of His glory through the Son when His Son dies for our sins on the cross. Jesus' glory is a glory through which God's own humility shines as He sent His only Son to die for the eternal life of us. And Paul applies this glory to the Christian life by exhorting us to treat one another as more significant than yourself. Philippians 2, 3. When Paul looks at this same glory in Christ, he sees that each one of us must look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is the mind of the Christians. This is the mind of the children of God that that God created uh, back in verse 13. If you're born of God, this is the way you live. You have this mind, that of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So unlike the world's idea of glory that vies for the place of honor at the expense of others, God's glory in Christ teaches us that true glory is characterized by taking up a cross. Unlike Lance Armstrong and all the same Lance Armstrong tendencies within our own hearts, true glory does not lie to promote self. It dies to promote Christ and the eternal good of others in Him. So looking upon God's glory in Jesus really affects us in two ways. Looking at Jesus gives us a true knowledge of God's glory for salvation. And then that glory moves us to 
humility with one another. Second, in answer to our question, what does Jesus reveal about God? We also see that Jesus reveals God's faithfulness supremely. He reveals God's faithfulness supremely. So when the Word became flesh, He not only revealed God's glory personally, but He also revealed God's faithfulness supremely. This is why John says, Jesus' glory is full of grace and truth. At the end of verse 14, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' glory is a glory brimming to the top with unmerited favor towards sinners and an unwavering commitment to the truthfulness of God's character. God didn't reveal His glory in the incarnate Word merely to impress His people, but to save His people and to save them in accordance with His covenant faithfulness. God had revealed His glory, this, the same glory of His covenant faithfulness before to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. And it's there we also learn that the Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Think, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness is the Old Testament equivalent to what John's saying here of being full of grace and truth. He goes on to say of himself to Moses that I keeps, that the Lord keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, full of grace but who will by no means clear the guilty, full of truth. When God reveals His glory, what we behold is that He's gracious to save sinners, but He, all, but he always saves them in a way that upholds His truthfulness and His faithfulness to His covenant. It's no wonder that Moses pops up in verse 17. <clears throat> John is helping us draw significant connections between Moses and Christ for the purpose of revealing God's faithfulness. When we behold the glory of God's Son, we're supposed to see grace towards sinners that upholds God's truthfulness. Let me say that again. When we behold the glory of God in Jesus, okay, we're supposed to see grace towards sinners that upholds God's truthfulness. Or the way John puts it, we're to see that the grace we receive in Christ is a grace that's consistent with the grace given to Moses. It's just way, way, way better. Look at how John says it in verse 16 and 17. For, the ESV has and, should be for, It's explaining verse 14. For from his fullness, that is the fullness of his grace and truth in verse 14, from his fullness we have all received. So in verse 16, John's explaining how we see Jesus' glory back in verse 14. 
Okay? How do we see Jesus' glory? We have seen Jesus' glory, a, a glory that's full of grace and truth, because we have received something. We've benefited from something. Namely, grace. We have received from His fullness. Namely, grace upon grace. Or better translated, grace replacing grace. Verse 14, I mean, verse 17 further explains what he means by grace replacing grace. For the law was given through Moses. That's one grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the better grace. So there are two graces mentioned. The law given through Moses. That's one grace. And the grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. That's the other grace. They're both God's grace to His people. So we shouldn't run quickly to Paul and start pitting grace against the law. Okay? John's not entering a discussion about the ground for our salvation. He agrees with Paul on that point, as we'll see later on, but he's more interested here to show the continuity that exists in God's plan to save us and the supreme grace that comes with Jesus Christ. In that sense, he agrees with Paul that the law is holy and the law is good and that Christ must be the end of that law for us if we are to be saved. What John is saying is that there was one grace in the covenant of the law and in the law... God revealed himself to Moses. He gave his people the law, and the law revealed God. It revealed his character. It revealed his saving purposes. It revealed his patterns for redemption. We can certainly think of all the patterns of redemption set forth in the law, which are then highlighted by the apostles' For example, the need for a great exodus to deliver us from slavery. The need for a tabernacle for God's presence to be among the people. The need for a sacrifice to atone for our sin. The need for a slaughtered lamb to deliver us from death. The need for heavenly bread to sustain our life and spiritual drink. To sustain us. The need for a priestly mediator between God and man. The need for a prophet to reveal God's word. And the list could go on and on. The law revealed God's character. It revealed his saving purposes and his patterns for redemption. In that sense, then, the law served as a very gracious gift of God. But John wants us to see that the grace and truth revealed in Jesus Christ far surpasses the grace once revealed to Moses in the law. That doesn't mean anything was lacking in the grace of the law, nor is there anything lacking now in the grace of the law. But in some ways, John is saying the grace that comes in Christ surpasses the one we find in the law. Why? Because all the patterns once set forth in the grace of the law, now find their ultimate expression and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. 
The law served as a revelation of grace by bearing witness to a revelation of grace that would eventually surpass it. The grace revealed in Jesus Christ. The gracious word God revealed to Moses in the law looked to the day when God would act through another gracious word, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. God had spoken a gracious word to Moses, but now, even as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he had spoken to us by a son, a son who embodied that word. You can even go to John chapter 5, verse 46, and see there that Jesus tells the religious authorities, you think you have life in these scriptures, but it's these that bear witness about me. And then he goes on to say, Moses wrote about me. Moses bore witness about me. And now I am here. I'm embodying that word. So, for example, by sending Jesus, God provides a greater exodus for us through the cross by delivering us from slavery to sin. By sending Jesus, God surpasses the grace of his presence in the tabernacle by giving us the grace of his presence in the Son. By sending his Son, God supplies the sacrifice par excellence to atone for all our sins without need for another. By sending His Son, God provides a far better grace than any Passover lamb would give us before. For in Jesus, we receive not just temporary relief from death, but totally relief from eternal death. By sending His Son, God supplies the heavenly bread, which satisfies satisfies us to the full, and the true spiritual drink, drink that quenches every one of our thirsts. By sending His Son, God supersedes the grace of priestly mediators under the law by giving us one priest who not only dies for us, but now is risen and lives forever, interceding for us in heaven. God gave Moses words, but Jesus is the Word. Moses' words serve as a lamp. Jesus is the light. Moses' words reveal God's grace, but Jesus actually carries out God's gracious purposes. So yes, the law was a grace to Moses, but that word was never going to provide further grace by taking on flesh. The law wasn't going to get on the cross and die for us, but the law did bear witness to one who would. That revelation of grace in the law was reserved for the one eternal word who would become a man, suffer, die, and rise again for his people. By drawing our attention to Moses, John shows us that Jesus is the ultimate self-expression of God's faithfulness to his covenant. God's grace in sending his son is not only consistent with his prior revelation to Moses, But His grace in sending His Son also fills up every grace Moses said that we needed for salvation. So what kind of grace and truth have you received in Jesus Christ? If you believe upon Him, you received a kind of grace and truth that reveals God's faithfulness supremely. And when this grace changes us and transforms us, then we're no longer blind to see Jesus' glory We see Jesus' glory as he reveals God to us for salvation.
So let me ask you one question in that light. Do you ever doubt God's faithfulness to you as a believer? Do you ever doubt God's faithfulness to you? I see your head's nodding. As the circumstances of your life change, the jobs get more difficult. As trials come that often cause great pain. As situations arise for you to suffer. As the economy sits on the edge, breaking, supposedly. As injustice runs rampant in our community. As the darkness of depression sets in from time to time. As parenting seems to grow more difficult instead of easier over the course of time. Perhaps there are decisions you're praying about that just don't seem to receive an answer ever. You're looking for a job. It just never comes. Do you ever doubt God's faithfulness to you? Do you ever ask yourself, God, if you're so faithful to me, then why aren't you just saying anything? Why aren't you saying anything? Why aren't you speaking to me? Why aren't you doing anything? Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, that God has spoken to us in a son. And that God has done something for our eternal good in the son. And we need not look any further than the word who became flesh to remind us of his faithfulness. He is God's decisive Word, which reveals His faithfulness for you. If there's ever doubt about whether God is faithful to His covenant for you in whatever circumstances you're dealing with, during job loss, besetting sins, brokenness, a sick son who's in the hospital right now, we need only look to Christ and His work, to find assurance for God's faithfulness. He is the supreme revelation of God's faithfulness to us. All of God's promises in Him are yes and amen. If God graced us with the eternal Word becoming flesh in order to die for our sins, how will He not also with Him risen from the dead freely give us? All things. He will not forsake you. He did not forsake his word to Moses. As we just saw, he sent his son into the world in accordance with what he told Moses. And it's a better grace. And he will not forsake his word to you. So look to him this morning and keep looking to him throughout the week. And behold his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's full of grace for you, and He'll remain true to His faithfulness in helping you obtain it. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the word that you have given to Moses. about the word that you have sent for us. 
I pray that in coming weeks, as we go through John's Gospel, that we would continue to see how that ancient word helps us understand the risen word who's now sitting at your right hand on our behalf, having accomplished all that's necessary for our salvation. I pray that people would be encouraged this coming week to find life in Him as they look to Him constantly to behold His glory. And we ask this in His name. Amen.